my mother grew up in First Methodist Church of Malakoff, Texas. Now, I don't know why it was First Methodist. It was the only Methodist in Malakoff, Texas. Uh, Malakoff's not a big city. Malakoff's barely a town. Um, home of the Malakoff Tigers, great place. I still have family there and still love going back. But, but she always struggled when she, she became an adult and got involved in, in different kinds of churches when, when they would talk about placing your faith in Christ. You're thinking, uh-oh, heresy alert, simmer down. What she struggled with was those people that made it sound like they, they, it was so clearly established that there was one point in time when the lights came on, the choir sang, they trusted Jesus, and from that day on, there was never anything different. Because she grew up in an incredible family. I did not know my grandfather. Uh, my grandmother was a remarkable saint, and, and, and my mother just grew up, and as a child, embraced more of Jesus over time. And then one day, she woke up and realized when people talked about trusting him, that's what she did. I went to a camp. I've, I've bashed this camp before, Bible Memory Association camp in Ringgold, New Louisiana when I was a kid. It was $6 a week so we could afford it. And you had to memorize hundreds of verses in order to go. And it was great for me because I learned a lot of Scripture. But they were fundamentalists. They were legal. They were not fun people. And, and I should have known we were in trouble when they served prunes at every meal. That is an indicator somebody's focused on the wrong things, if you know what I'm saying here. I mean, it was just, and I remember having a counselor who was a genuinely nice man, but he had everything figured out. The mark of the beast in Revelations is, is your social security number, he said. I don't know how he got there. It was kind of weird, but he was sure. Um, and, and he also taught that, that if you couldn't remember the point in time, the absolute moment when you placed your faith and hope in Christ, then you weren't saved. And I thought, remember that in the Bible. I just don't remember that. And in fact, when you read church history, you find out through eras in the body of Christ, in the church, that there was less of this emphasis on that, that closing of the deal, that, that sales mentality, and more of a sense of faith being a journey that people come into oftentimes over time and in stages. That that. Faith is not quite as simple as we make it. Why is that important to me? Now, first of all, I do believe in the gospel. I believe that you place your faith and hope in Christ and from that time that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world, was resurrected on the third day, it sits in the throne room of God and will come again and receive his people to himself. I believe that to the core of my being. I wouldn't do this job if I didn't believe it. But sometimes we talk about faith in this simplistic way that absolutely leads to more confusion. It's as if that one moment you, you walked the aisle, you prayed the prayer, you signed the dotted line, whatever it was, from that point on you had faith and you had it down and there was no problem anymore. You got done. I am done with faith. I am down with faith. I got faith. What's the problem with that? Life gets in the way, right? And, and, and we find that our faith needs to grow and expand and deepen and change. Today I want to look with you in Luke chapter 8. We go through passages of Scripture like this so often because um, I don't want me to get in the way. I want you to see it from Scripture. But in, in this passage, Jesus 
is teaching about faith. And in teaching about faith, I think we find that he actually may understand it better than we do and that, that he broadens it so that it fits all of our life experience so much better than when we make it this, this sales transaction. You know what I'm saying? So look with me at Luke chapter 8. First verses 8, uh, I mean 1 through 15, he speaks of faith that grows. Uh, first, after this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He is proclaiming the gospel. And the 12 were with him, whom he had just chosen, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. According to Josephus, it was not uncommon at this time for women to travel with bands of disciples, with a rabbi, and help financially. This is not scandalous. This was normative in the first century. And, and I believe Luke wants us to know that these women who would be witnesses of the resurrection had been a part of Jesus' ministry throughout. Their testimony, their role is important. Luke focuses on the role of women probably more than any of the Gospels. He finds them incredibly significant to what God is doing. Verse 4, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path it was trampled on, and the birds ate it. And some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he had said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you're listening, if you want to hear this, hear this. His disciples asked him what the parable meant, and he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. That is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, the emphasis of which is God's judgment, and it seems to indicate there comes a point when you have turned your cold heart to God that he no longer uh, pierces your hearing with the message. In other words, he's not going to bother you with that. He's closed your heart because you've closed it yourself. He's done with you um, because you have rejected the truth. And these are people that by using the parables, those that had rejected him would never understand. And when you sometimes around unbelievers, it's shocking what they don't understand that seems so simple to us. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. And those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Interesting, in, in Luke's version, he emphasizes the word for the gospel, for the message of salvation. In the other synoptics, there are places where he does not mention salvation, and it is rather used to speak of how we respond to any word from God. Here there is the emphasis upon the response to the gospel itself. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by 
and, and by persevering produce a crop. Faith grows. Now, there's a huge debate among uh, those who study Scripture about who is saved of these four seed groups, soils. The first uh, soil, most would universally say these aren't believers because they, they reject the faith. They don't hear the faith. It, it's, it's plucked up and taken away. And, and certainly the last group are believers because they receive the, the, faith, the word and they produce a hundred times in, in produce and, and results because of it. But there's a huge debate, is number two saved, is number three saved? I find it interesting that Jesus nor Luke chooses to tell us. Because the reality is, you, you can see unbelievers and believers both operate in a way that appears consistent with this. Isn't that right? Isn't it true that sometimes believers will hear the word, have a quick response, and then walk away and not show results in their life for a period? Sometimes, maybe all of us have experienced when the affairs of the world around us have choked out the effectiveness of the Word so that it doesn't produce fruit in our lives. In other words, there, there are times when you look at a believer and an unbeliever, you can't, for periods, you cannot, you cannot see a difference. But Jesus is clearly teaching about faith that, that when we respond to the, the truth of Scripture, it should grow. The normal expectation of the Word is that it, it becomes productive and that, that it produces results. And these other things are abnormal. They're not God's desire. I want you to also notice that in the parable, He's helping us see what the enemies of us responding to the truth are. First of all, Satan himself Scripture always teaches that we are in a spiritual battle with a, a spiritual enemy who is out to destroy and bring harm to us and to the world in which we live. And, and Satan will always work to keep the gospel and the truth of Scripture from having an impact in our lives. He does that. That's what he does. It's his job. But secondly, there are other things. That sometimes it's just we don't take the time to absorb the truth. And many who hear the gospel don't, don't respond to it because they have a little quick response and then they go home and forget about it. It, 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 hasn't, it hasn't penetrated so that it had a result. And then certainly the third one represents many of our lives when the pressures of life choke out the reality of what the truth of Scripture could do in our lives, right? Because life gets in the way rather than rather than infusing all of life with the truth of the Word and the reality of the gospel, we allow life to choke it out completely. But what does he want us to see? That God's intention is that faith grows, it develops, it produces fruit. It's not a one-time event that we accomplish one time in our lives. It is instead some, uh, uh, something in which we step that will continue to develop throughout our lives because life continues to challenge us in new ways. So faith grows. Verse 16 through 21, uh, we have two quick uh, descriptions that help us to see that faith grows because it listens and responds and applies the word. 
And no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there's nothing hidden that will not be closed and nothing disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what they have shall be taken from them. Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, and they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. And he replied, my mothers and brothers, mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Interestingly, Jesus uses the lamp on the stem differently than he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is not about us giving testimony to the world of the gospel. Instead, it's about the reality that one day the light will reveal how we've responded to the word. Therefore, it's important that we respond. And he even uses his own earthly family to describe it. He says, my family are those who have responded to the truth of the word, who for whom the gospel and the truth of Scripture have, have made an impact because they have taken it to heart and grown. So faith grows because faith listens. It responds to the truth of Scripture. One of the reasons we do so much exposition here is we, we believe that Scripture is the ultimate means by which the Holy Spirit takes His truth and applies it to the hearts of others. And the more we understand Scripture, the more we are able to depend on Christ consistently in our faith. The chapter continues on in verse 26. Faith tells. They sailed to the region of the, region of the Gerasenes, which is on the opposite side of the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. He was clearly unmarried. Um, because many of us men, if we were not supervised, would not be clothed or housed. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet and shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, don't torture me. Why would, why would he say that? Because it is the demonic presence that sees that they are enemies of Christ and are going to be subject to his judgment. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man, and many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot, it kept under guard. He had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, the place of the dead. And a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. An attorney in the first service offered to sue Jesus on behalf of the pig farmer for the loss of property. I wish I'd thought to say to him, of course, that assumes that they would have to accept that Jesus had in fact had the power over the demons in order to accomplish that miracle. And so by doing it, he would be confessing Jesus as Lord, which would be awkward in a court of law. And when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this into the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it 
told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And he got into the boat and left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent them away saying, return home and tell much, how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done. Jesus here very intentionally and carefully puts on quite a scene to demonstrate his power over spiritual forces. Now we live in an era we deny their existence. But the reality is throughout most of history, people have admitted the existence of demonic forces and therefore have seen evidence. And if you speak to people who have, who have served in missions in India and Haiti and other parts of the world where animism and spirit worship is, is active, you will hear stories that will make the hair on your neck stand on end because it is very real. I personally agree with C.S. Lewis that the demonic world chooses to stay undercover here because since we deny them, why ruin our little lie. But the fact is, Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And Jesus here shows that he has power over these demonic forces in this garrison demoniac who's, and notice what demonic possession does. It destroys, it tears apart, it dehumanizes someone. Jesus commands at the, pig, the demon's request that they be allowed to go possess pigs. Why pigs? Well, first of all, because the, the Gennesaret is on the um, non-Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Therefore, it was a Gentile city where they would have raised pigs. Jews didn't raise pigs. You can't eat them. They're not that good of house pets, generally speaking. And, and so it would have been a huge demonstration to the Gentiles of the power of Jesus. I literally believe he did this to give them an opportunity to see that he was the Savior of the world. And, and word got out and everybody came to see him, but they rejected him. Why? Because they were afraid. You catch that? They were afraid. You know, one of the, maybe the biggest reason people don't embrace the gospel is out of fear. You think, what in the world could they be fair, afraid of? Losing control? A God who doesn't care? Experiences they've had that have caused them to fear God's people? Uh, the, the fear of somehow losing themselves? under the reign of a sovereign God? I, I think there are a lot of reasons. The reality is many who don't embrace Jesus don't embrace him because of fear. That's why the people from Gennesaret rejected him. They, they were afraid of him. They saw his power, and that suggested to them that uh, trusting him could have huge consequences in their life. And rather than embrace the power of the one who could do these great miracles, they instead feared and ran. Notice also that the man who was healed wanted to follow Jesus. But because he was Gentile, Jesus said no. In, in later stories, you'll see that Jesus told people not to tell about him in the course of the gospel. We believe that was because in the Jewish world, he wanted to control the information. In other words, he did not want the 
the friction with the religious leaders to come to a head before it was time. He wanted to fulfill his ministry before he allowed himself to be crucified so that he told people to keep a lid on this. But because this man was a Gentile, and that wouldn't have packed him, he said, go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. Because faith tells. Faith tells. What does it tell? You have to know the ontological arguments for the existence of God. You need to be able to debate the order of God's decree, whether it's supralapsarian, infralapsarian, superlapsarian, or no lapsarian, just a lapse in judgment. In other words, do, do you have to be able to argue all the great philosophical and theological issues related to the deity of Christ and all everything? No. What, what is the essence of telling? Telling people what Jesus has done for you. Nobody can argue with that. And you're an expert in that. There's no one in the world who knows better what Jesus has done in your life. Now, you and I may sometimes forget to think about it and get so unaware, become so aware of all the things he hasn't done, like a spoiled child, we neglect all the things he has done. But the reality is, the greatest tool for speaking to others is just tell them about our experience with Christ. Because faith tells. Faith tells because we ultimately enjoy it more as we tell other people what we've experienced. Faith tells because we believe it so true, so completely we want others to see what we've experienced. Faith tells because we believe it's the truth and the people that we care about should hear it as well. Faith grows, faith listens, and faith tells. Faith even pleads, verse 40 through 56. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Um, Jairus means he will give light. Kind of curious, you know, most of the people, aren't, their names aren't given, but Luke goes out of his way to give Jairus his name because it means he will give light. This is a man who's desperate. We often read Scripture as if it's a, 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 a semblance of facts, but the reality is if we don't read it emotionally, we miss the story. This is a man who left his house because his 12-year-old little girl was about to die. And he risks his reputation in the synagogue and his own pride going to this teacher to publicly beg him, please, please save my little girl. As Jesus went on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a man who was there had been subject, uh, excuse me, a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, probably uterine bleeding, but no one could heal her. There are descriptions of the things they subjected women to in trying to heal this, and they're just crazy. She came up behind him. She touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. She had been so beaten down, and the crowds were so great, she didn't dare or didn't believe she could get his attention, but she believed so much and was so desperate, she just touched the hem 
of his garment. She pleaded with her actions, if not her words. Who touched me, Jesus asked. They all denied it, and Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. And Jesus said, No, someone touched me, and I know the power has gone out for me. And the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. How humiliating for her. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, so don't bother the teacher anymore. All hope is gone. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Notice that fear thing comes up again. Just believe. She'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. And meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing. She's not dead but asleep, Jesus said. And they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up, and Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. What an amazing story. This, this excruciating roller coaster emotionally for the man Jairus, who saw Jesus delayed because he stops and has to talk to this woman. You, you know he's thinking, she's healed already. Can we move on? And then he goes, and Jesus says, No, he's she's fine. And the crowds make a ridicule of Jesus because clearly he's not very smart. And then Jesus rise, raises the little girl from the dead. Jairus has his prayer answered. I'm sure became a disciple of Christ. See, faith is not just something that we did one time in our lives when we were praying a prayer or, or at a crusade or sitting with our mother in, on the bedside or whatever those circumstances were when we first embraced the gospel. Faith is a reality into which we step, which continues to grow in our lives, continues to produce fruit, and continues to be threatened by new challenges. But it's in those new challenges that our faith develops and becomes more real. It, it's in facing health issues, financial issues, children's issues, identity issues. It's in, in struggling through life that this, this living faith in us takes on a greater and greater form and becomes more meaningful all the time. Many of us have treated faith as a, a dot on the timeline of our life when the reality is it, it is a reality of living into which we step when we place our ourselves in Jesus' hands. And that journey of faith is one of the most rewarding and significant things we can ever do because each step of the way, each new challenge, each new opportunity, we see infused by Jesus' hands as we live that aspect of life in coordination with him. But one last thing, what happens when Jesus says no? 
You know, it, it, the prosperity guys love these kind of passages because they just guarantee that if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. If you have enough faith, this will all take place. But that's not what it teaches. One of the great passages for God's answers of no is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 and following, because the Apostle Paul honestly discusses his own prayer life and disappointments in it. He says, you know, three times I prayed for the Lord to remove this thorn of the flesh. We don't know what the thorn of the flesh is. Some believe it's eyesight. Some believe it's crippling. Some believe it's depression. There are all kinds of things that have been suggested. But the Apostle Paul says, I prayed three times. And I don't think that means three sentences three times. I think that means periods of deep and earnest prayer. And he says, God said no. Let me read to you what he does say. Even if I should uh, choose to boast, I would be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. No one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Sometimes those challenges are God's way to keep us Humble, dependent. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. But by God saying no, I came to see that the grace I had was enough and that being weak allowed me to experience his strength. So I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What does this teach about faith? We're, not, we're all not going to get healed every time we pray for healing because unless the Lord comes, we're going to die. God does not, in Jesus' prayer in John 17, he said they are still in the world. And because we're still in the world, we will experience the consequences of the fall. And even Christians go through incredibly difficult times, even when they pray earnestly. And what Jesus is teaching, and Paul is validating, though, is that, that we have stepped into this the sphere of faith, and we live our lives continually growing in our trust within Him. And no matter what the circumstances are, we develop in our trust in Him. And by leaning into Him, we experience Him, and we grow in Him, and we are used by Him. And even when He says no, even when He says no, He has a purpose in it. Maybe to keep us humble. Maybe to keep us dependent. Maybe to experience what others have experienced. But faith is living. It's a lifestyle. It's something to which you and I are called that begins we embrace the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world and was resurrected on the third day and will come again to judge the living and the dead. But even more than that, it is a life that's lived moment by moment, 
responding to his word, growing in his grace, pleading in hardship and depending on him because he is enough. Your faith growing. Are you allowing the obstacles to become the headlines and your faith become the fine print? Or, or is life allowing you the privilege of experiencing what it is to trust Jesus every step? Grow in Jesus every step and have results for Jesus in all of life. Don't give up. Don't look back. Instead, grab hold of the faith that Christ has given you and, and keep going forward in dependence on him. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that faith is hard and that sometimes we struggle to trust, but we thank you that you're always enough. Lord, teach us what it is to depend on you trust in you, and, and give us the joy of seeing you work. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.